0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit AmericanVision.org to purchase this book or to read other articles. The Bounds of Love An Introduction to God's Law of Liberty by Dr. Joel McDermott Copyright 2016 Published by American Vision Incorporated Chapter 2 Rightly Dividing the Law my concise definition of theonomy raises some important questions. For this reason, a fuller treatment is in order to address at least a couple of these. For example, Is theonomy primarily concerned only with civil government or politics? The short answer is no, and this is already implied in the concise definition, as well as clear in the introduction. Theonomy is indeed much broader than civil government. It is about all of life, individual, business, work, family, church, medicine, science, etc. It is, however, the unique position of theonomy to say that Mosaic judicial law contains abiding standards to which civil governments today remain obliged. In this view, the whole of the Word of God reveals abiding standards for the whole of life and society. But the most pressing question to be discussed is that of how to categorize the different laws God has given us. This will help us determine why they continue today or have been abrogated. Biblical Categories for Biblical Law The most important questions that my definition leaves unanswered is, quote, Which Mosaic Laws continue and which do not? Unquote. And, quote, How do we know? Unquote. After all, the position that the perpetual and obligatory moral standards includes, quote, some, civil laws, means that we have to say which ones are included, which ones are not, and why. By what standard shall we determine? In this section, I will argue that whatever functional categories we determine Mosaic law may be divided, for the purposes of continuity in the New Testament, there are ultimately only two categories. I will also argue that the standard by which we determine this is scripture itself. The Bible, not man, tells us this. The importance of maintaining clear distinctions and a clear standard applies to all areas of law, not just civil government. But it receives particularly keen attention in the civil realm because several of the Mosaic civil laws have death penalties attached to them, and others would require considerable moderation of current penalties. Shall we execute Sabbath breakers today? What about adulterers? Whatever the propriety of determining a position based on how these questions are answered first, which does happen? Unfortunately, they do have tremendous import for society. Getting the answer wrong would obviously be tragic. But then again, a wrong answer either way would be tragic. Theologians have arrived at all kinds of answers to this question. The differing views span the entire spectrum from arguing that no Old Testament laws remain today to arguing that virtually all do. In the middle, some argue that only a few laws apply, and others say more or even most. Some say that what laws do apply only apply in a spiritual way for the church. Others argue that some laws apply outside the church in the realm of civil government, but only certain, quote, principles, apply, and that things like the actual punishments prescribed in Old Testament law do not apply. At the heart of these disagreements are a couple of main factors. One, the relationship between Old and New Testaments. Two, different types or categories of law which appear in the Old Testament. Only extreme positions hold that either none or all of the law still oblige And since I have already shown in the introduction how the New Testament calls for God's law in general as an abiding standard for Christians and for standards of civil righteousness outside the church, we will deal here with the broad spectrum of those that argue some laws abide and others do not. This means we will deal mainly with the second question. We must examine the categories Scripture uses to explain which laws remain and which do not. First, the most famous categorization of the Old Testament law, in the Reformed traditions anyway, has been called the, quote, threefold, unquote, distinction. The three categories being moral, judicial, and ceremonial. We can see this threefold division easily enough in the structure of the law. In Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments, the moral law. In chapters 21 through 23... God has Moses speak a series of mostly judicial laws to the people. These are written in a book, and the covenant is ratified on these terms by the people in chapter 24. Finally, in chapters 25 through 30, God reveals to Moses the pattern for the tabernacle and the priestly worship. With these three sections, we can see the functional division of the law into moral, judicial, and and ceremonial categories. But whether these categorical lines are absolute and whether they determine continuity or discontinuity are far less clear. This view has been widely adopted but less commonly agreed upon in substance. All agree that the quote, moral unquote, category, usually including at least part of the Ten Commandments, still applies but arguments remain as to exactly what beyond the Ten Commandments can be categorized as moral and to what extent it applies. Arguments also exist over whether the Ten Commandments as a whole is, quote, moral, unquote, and thus abiding, or whether aspects of it, for example, the curses and promises attached to the Second Commandment, Exodus 20, 5-6, are peculiar to Israel only. All also agree that the ceremonial laws—sacrifices, temple rites, priesthood, feast days, etc.—no longer apply, but even here, arguments exist as to exactly how and why, with some theologians, for example, dispensationalists, arguing that many of the temple rites and sacrifices will be revived during a future millennium. Likewise, those pursuing elements of high liturgy, may actually appeal to the pattern laid down for the Old Testament priesthood. Finally, the civil category gives rise to important arguments as well. Some see important moral elements in the judicial, quote, case, unquote, laws of the Old Testament, and these, most would agree, remain today. But there is little agreement, or really even discussion, as to which of these laws, or parts of laws, constitute quote, "moral" unquote, elements in which do not further it seems to be a majority though very modern position to deny any moral aspect to the mosaic civil law and to dismiss these laws in their entirety as abrogated along with the ceremonial laws in the end despite the witness of the great reformed confessions for example the westminster confession of faith and the london baptist confession To this threefold distinction, there has never been consensus on important terms and aspects of it. Even if all agree that these three categories are properly biblical, there is no agreed-upon standard for determining which laws belong in which categories, and thus which abide and which do not. In this very strain, some Reformed and later Puritan theologians of both Reformed and Baptist backgrounds arrived at what could be called a fourfold distinction of the law. These saw the traditional abiding moral core and an abrogated ceremonial set, but then divided the third category of quote civil unquote, or quote judicial unquote, into two divisions of its own. The first judicial division included those judicial laws which were tied directly to the ceremonial law and the ancient state of Israel and thus were abrogated along with it. The second set, however, were those case laws which were tied to the moral law and thus abide along with it. We will cover these particular theologians and their arguments more thoroughly later. It is enough now simply to understand that they exist and what their position was. This position is important because it highlights the real nature of the problem. The truth is that all parties involved in this long-enduring argument hold ultimately to a twofold division of the law this is not merely to introduce yet another wrinkle in an already complicated discussion rather it is an attempt to simplify the problem and explain why it has so far not been resolved the two divisions are these those laws which abide and those which do not with rare exceptions no one is given a scriptural argument to support their positions of any other categories, or especially how particular Old Testament laws fit into them. Those that struggled and ended up defining four categories merely arrived at a more complicated version of this twofold distinction. In the fourfold distinction, we basically have the judicial law tied back to two other categories, one which abides, moral, and one which does not, ceremonial. So we really ultimately have only a twofold distinction here as well: those laws which abide and those which do not. Likewise, the more traditional and more popular threefold distinction includes variants in which either some or none of the judicial laws are abrogated, and so it really falls under the same assessment. In this light, we can still accept the classic three-fold division. Of the Confessions as a functional distinction. Civil is certainly separate and distinct from temple, priesthood, sacrifice, or ceremonial law functionally, and is certainly a separate functional aspect from the declaration of core moral principles. But it can hardly be an absolute distinction by which we determine continuity or termination in the New Testament. After all, the commandment against murder is certainly moral, but it also certainly has civil ramifications. We ought, therefore, to inquire of the converse, and we will find that virtually all of the civil side of that equation is just as much moral as it is civil, including the level of civil punishment prescribed. We will discuss this aspect more under the chapter, quote, The Abiding Judicial Standard, unquote. The language of the Westminster Confession of Faith makes these various distinctions clear. When it says that the civil or judicial laws, quote, expired together with the state of that people, not obliging under any now, unquote, it does not leave this as a blanket abrogation. Instead, it concludes, quote, further than the general equity thereof may require, unquote. This, of course, means two things. We must consider what is meant by, quote, general equity, unquote. We will do this later, and we must acknowledge that whatever part of the judicial laws does, in fact, involve, quote, general equity, unquote, does, in fact, abide today and oblige civil government. This means the Confession's underlying assumption is that some part of the Mosaic Civil Code applies to civil governments today. In short, behind the classic threefold functional distinction of the law is in reality a more fundamental twofold distinction. All discussion about categories of the law, unless it focuses only on the functions each category represents, really does boil down to a more fundamental discussion of whether any given Old Testament law stands or does not stand. There are at least some distinctions within Old Testament law itself that we can see on the very surface of reading the text. There are others we will have to discern with more detailed exegesis. Non-binding commandments One set of commandments we must see as not binding are instances of particular commands to an individual. An example of this would be the command for Samuel to go anoint a new king, David, at a particular place and time. Jesse's house in Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16. Another example would be Saul being commanded to destroy the entire Amalekite civilization, man, woman, child, and cattle at a particular time, 1 Samuel 15. These commandments were special revelations given to specific individuals at specific times for specific purposes. We are not to generalize social principles as law from them. For example, we are not to look at Samuel's mission here and conclude that from henceforth all civil officials must be descended from Jesse and anointed in a special ceremony at his house in Bethlehem. Nor should we look at the instance with Saul and conclude any state policy from it. We should not deduce from it that we must wage all wars with the mission being to annihilate the enemy's civilization totally, including women, children, and property. Despite the fact that Saul himself was judged harshly for rebellion and witchcraft merely for failing in only a small part of this mission, saving the cattle and King Agag alive, we must not attach to it any abiding policy. We can, however, learn the general lesson that we must obey God utterly and what He does command to us. Similarly, in the New Testament, Paul was given specific directives via the Holy Spirit for him in his mission trips. For example, he was forbidden to visit Asia or Bithynia to evangelize, Acts 16, 6-7. Should we deduce from these commandments that the gospel is generally always forbidden to be preached in Asia or northern Turkey? Obviously not. We should be careful, therefore, when drawing meaning from commandments that had only specific personal, temporal, local, and or purposive application. In addition to such specific personal commands, there are also positive commands for distinct incidents. This would include, for example, God's one-time command for Israel to exterminate the Canaanite tribes. Such positive commandments should be viewed very similarly to the specific commandments just discussed except that they are given to a broader group of people. Nevertheless, they still pertain to a special mission, purpose, and or time only. The Canaanite crusade is a perfect example of this type of law. It was for ancient Israel only and in the promised land only. It also pertained to God's special presence in the altar fire in the land, as we shall see. It does not apply to rules of warfare or international relations in general. In fact, Israel was given a different set of laws governing warfare in general where the specific Canaanite nations in the land were not involved. See Deuteronomy 20. This distinction is critical because there are, even today, respected theologians who appeal to the Canaanite genocides as providing a, quote, crusade, model for modern warfare. In light of the qualifications made in the text, and further general laws given in addition, we must not apply these commandments today. The Shadows we can extend our understanding of positive commands for distinct incidents to all aspects of the Old Testament law, which had only temporal application. This category accounts for the vast bulk of Old Testament laws, which are no longer in effect. It includes the majority of what are traditionally called, quote, ceremonial, unquote, laws, as well as others. The primary places we hear stark statements of discontinuity or in the books of Galatians and Hebrews. When properly understood, both give us a similar answer. While speaking in stark and absolute terms, a close examination reveals that each is speaking of only a portion of the law as being discontinued. Namely, the types and shadows of the Old Testament priesthood, temple, and sacrificial system. Let us look at the instances in these two books. Galatians and quote, the weak and beggarly elements. Unquote. In the third chapter of Galatians, the word quote, law unquote, appears fifteen times in only twenty nine verses, and almost every time it appears in a negative light. Here is a representative sample. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3, 21-26 A couple things stands out here. First, there are no categories of law being discussed here, just, quote, the law, unquote. At this point, we don't know if Paul is speaking of the whole law as a single unit or only part of it. We will have to deduce this point from other passages. Second, Paul is clearly talking about a cessation of quote, the law unquote, in these passages. Quote, the law unquote, was an imprisonment, a custodianship akin to slavery see galatians four one through seven that lasted only until Christ came. With no further understanding, it would be easy to conclude from this that the entire law quote, the law unquote, was abrogated when Christ came that which Paul called a, schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, unquote, including the entirety of the Old Testament law, and is now null and void. The problem with this view is that it would create a contradiction with the many passages we have already seen. The law is holy, just, and good. Paul appeals to the lawful use of the law, and the New Testament writers appeal to various parts of Mosaic law in order to support their arguments for Christian ethics. Jesus himself upheld all the law and the prophets via the law of love and ordered his disciples to keep his commandments. Further, we have seen that the new covenant itself involves God writing his laws on our hearts. So how could Paul here be arguing that the entirety of the law is abrogated? He is not. He is making a more nuanced point that becomes clearer when you study the context of the letter. In Galatians 4.3, Paul refers to the time under, quote, the law, unquote, as, quote, when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, unquote. In verse 9, he chides the Galatians, saying, quote, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more, unquote. The KJV memorably translates the phrase, quote, the weak and beggarly elements of the world, unquote. Was Paul speaking of the whole law here, including the Ten Commandments, civil laws, etc.? The very next verse begins to eliminate the issue. Paul's condemnation is directed against those who, quote, Observe days and months and seasons and years. Chapter 4, verse 10. It appears that Paul is concentrating on what have been traditionally called the ceremonial aspects of the law. Several of the Galatians had been deceived into believing they had to follow feast days, Sabbaths, and especially circumcision in order to be faithful Christians. This was seeking salvation through work not faith thus it is clear that by condemning quote the law unquote here paul is referring only to two things one any attempt to attain salvation through any works of the law and two those who require submission to certain ceremonial aspects of the law this issue becomes clearer in two places first in galatians 5 Paul's discussion of the, quote, the law, unquote, turns specifically to circumcision. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 5, 1-6 this type of behavior is where the term Judaizing comes from. It is actually used explicitly in the Greek by Paul in Galatians 2:14, when he condemns the Jewish faction among the Galatians for trying to force Gentiles to, quote, live like Jews, Iodazin. From the discussion in Galatians 4 through 5, it appears he had in mind circumcision primarily and perhaps following the feast days and calendar as well. This view receives further support when we see Paul making a similar argument with the same language in Colossians 2. He argues that even the uncircumcised believers have been spiritually circumcised in Christ, and that Christ has removed the, quote, legal demands, unquote, against us by nailing them to His cross, Colossians 2, 8-15. Then Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits, principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch unquote, referring to things that are all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, Colossians two, sixteen through 23 Paul is referring here to the same feasts and Sabbaths. In Galatians, he called them, quote, Weak and beggarly elements. Unquote. Here he just calls them quote, elements unquote, or quote, elemental principles unquote, which serve only self made religion. Unquote. Given that Paul and other New Testament writers elsewhere uphold much of the Old Testament law in very strong terms, it is clear that he is concerned here with only certain aspects of it which include ceremonial rites and outward marks of separation, and which some teachers at the time believed were still necessary in order to be saved. By dismissing, quote, the law, unquote, in Galatians, therefore, Paul is not saying that none of the law retains any validity. If this were the case, he would be promoting, quote, faith, unquote, at the expense of murder, theft, rape, arson, covetousness, and every other moral, and civil transgression, along with the abrogated ceremonial rites like feast days and circumcision. This would be utter nonsense. It is doubly helpful that Paul, in Colossians, refers to this superseded part of the law as quote, shadows of things to come. Unquote. It is here that we find a strong confirmatory link in the book of Hebrews and an important doctrine. Hebrews and the, quote, shadows, unquote. Colossians and Galatians have already given us an important category by which to think in confirming that some parts, but not all, of the law are weak and beggarly, quote, elements, unquote. Colossians helps us further by labeling these elements as mere, quote, shadows, unquote, of things to come. This book of Hebrews uses the same language and opens the concepts for us further. The relevant passages are Hebrews 8, 5, and 10, 1. Let us examine them along with their meaning. Hebrews 8, 5 reads, They, the old covenant priest, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, quote, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Unquote. The letter reiterates this concept in chapter 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10, 1. These passages make it clear enough that the, quote, shadows, unquote, refer only to those aspects of the law that pertain to the Old Testament priesthood, temple, or tabernacle, sacrifices, etc., with no reference to what are normally called the moral or judicial aspects of the law. The distinction appears clearly again in chapter 9, with more focus on the substance. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands—that is, not of this creation—he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9:1 through 12, emphasis added. The argument here is the argument of the letter to the Hebrews in general. The new covenant is superior to the old. Specifically, it has a superior priest, Christ. Superior sacrifice, Christ himself, the Lamb of God, once for all. And superior temple, heavenly, not earthly. This section makes clear that these, quote, symbolic, unquote, aspects of the law deal only with these things. Things including the, quote, earthly place of holiness, unquote, quote, priests, unquote, quote, ritual duties, unquote, quote, food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, unquote. These are all things Paul previously called out as the mere, quote, elements, unquote, of the law. Colossians 2, 17. This being the case, we learn that the priesthood, sacrifices, rituals, and temple of the Old Covenant are therefore only, quote, symbolic. Unquote. The Greek word here literally translate as, quote, a parable, unquote. The letter argues specifically that these are temporary, being imposed only until the, quote, time of reformation, unquote. Chapter 9, verse 10. When was this, quote, time of reformation, unquote? The letter indicates that this time had already been inaugurated with Christ, would be finalized once the old temple was no longer standing. Chapter 9, verse 8. And that this end was very near already then. Quote, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Unquote. Hebrews eight, thirteen. But What about the rest of the law? As we have already seen, the same passage that says these old elements were obsolete and about to vanish also says just three verses earlier, that in the New Covenant, God will write His law on our minds and hearts, Hebrews eight ten. So obviously the entirety of the law did not vanish along with the priesthood, temple, rituals, and other elements. In other words, the rest of the law was not part of the, quote, weak and beggarly elements, unquote, or the, quote, shadow of good things to come, unquote the rest continues in capacities such as we have seen god prescribe in hebrews 8:10 and 1 timothy 1:8 through 10 as well as the gospel and epistles of john the great question is still how do we know where to draw the lines how do we know which parts of the law pertain to the temporary quote, "shadows" unquote, of the law and which parts continue as everlasting moral and judicial standards. We will further answer these questions in the next couple of chapters.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, Or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.